Good morning, Forward. Today we're going to be reading from God's Word in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15. We're going to go all the way to chapter 3. You can follow along in the Pew Bibles in front of you or on the screen above me. Genesis 2, starting in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. Happy New Year, everyone. Maybe wondering why we're back in Genesis 2. Weren't we there back in November? I thought we'd moved on from there. Well, let me give you a hint. Planning sermon series is way harder than it looks. And uh, I thought we could get through the section on humanity, the image of God, in five weeks. We planned five weeks for it leading up to Advent, and then I got into the weeds of it and realized that I needed more time. So, we took a break, did Advent, and now we're back into humanity for a couple weeks. So we're going to do this week and next week, and then we'll move on from there, I think, uh, at that point. Um, this, this week uh, really follows up on a lot of the things that we said back in November, if you can remember back that far, and it's, uh, it, it's talking about, we've been talking about gender and male and female in those two weeks, and, and today uh, our big idea is going to follow out of those, those sermons. Our big idea is that God created marriage and sex to reflect his image. There's one more part of what it means to be a human that reflects the image of God. Marriage and sex also reflect his image. This is an important sermon for all of you today because whether you are married or not married, you are a human being and you have been created as a sexual being. Hi, my name's Sydney. Um, Honestly, we don't think enough about about what that means. So it's good for us to dig into God's word and see how he designed marriage and sex to reflect his image in us and how that's true of us whether we're married or not. Now, because it's been so long since the last sermon in this series, and it really does build on those sermons, uh, our first point is going to be a a recap point of our final two sermons in November. Just going to summarize those quickly for us before we go on from there. So, our first point, the recap point, is that God created the roles of husbands and wives to reflect his image. We talk about being married, husbands and wives is what the Bible lays out. And those roles mean something. They're not interchangeable. And the roles of husbands and wives, God created them to reflect his image. 
So we read today in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Remember, we talked about how this is the first thing that God said in all of creation wasn't good. As he's going through and creating things, he says over and over again, and it was good, and it was good as he makes them. But when he, noticed, when he sees that the man is alone, this is the first thing he says isn't good. It's not complete with just the man. There needed to be a woman as well. And so in the second half of the same verse, after he says it's not good for the man to be alone, he says, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, we talked about this a few weeks or a month or so ago about how this verse may strike us as demeaning to women, but it's not. This verse has been used to demean women, but it shouldn't be. If we understand it properly in those words, helper and suitable, and maybe this is coming back to you at this point, we'll see that it doesn't put women down at all. So let's talk about those two words, helper and suitable, speaking with, starting with suitable. That word suitable, as we, you may remember, is a compound Hebrew word. That's two words squished together into one word. And it literally means like opposite to. That God made Eve to be like Adam, as opposed to the animals, which Adam looked at and said, no, they're not suitable for me. She's like him in that she's a human being. But she's also not exactly like him. She's not the same as him. She's also his opposite. She's different from him. And this is not just talking about personality, again, as if one of them is outgoing and one of them is introverted. This is talking about who she is as a woman rather than as a man. That women and men are suitable for each other because they are like each other, humans who are equal but also opposite to each other as male and female. Now, we talked about this in two ways a month or so ago. We asked two questions. The first one, what does it mean to be a man or a woman? We asked that. It's a physical question. Physically, God created men and women as people with bodies that are designed to reflect God's image. And if you're a male, your body is designed to reflect God's image by being able to be a father. You're designed to be a father. And if you're a female, your body is designed to be a mother, which also reflects who God is. And so physically, obviously, male and female bodies fit together to make fatherhood and motherhood happen. But we also talked about there's another way to talk about how males and females are suitable or like opposite to each other. It goes, just, it goes beyond just anatomy to the way that we're designed to act by God. And that God designed males and females differently in terms of how we should act. Our second question, what does it mean to act like a man or a woman? The answer was we need to, to answer that question, we need to talk about the word helper, right? What does the word helper in this chapter mean? And you may remember that we looked at Genesis chapter 2.15. We read in there that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Right? So God gave Adam this task to work and take care of the garden. And we talked about how, uh, how when we talked about work back in November, we talked about how this reflected a bigger job that God gave Adam and Eve in chapter 1, verse 28. Back in chapter 1, verse 28, when he creates male and females, he says, he, God says he blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves in the ground. So Adam has been put into this garden to have authority, to take, to take care of it, to rule over the, the world as a representative of God. He's God's sort of vice regent. And that's a big job that he can't do alone. Right? And understanding that job helps us to understand 
what God means when he says in chapter 2, verse 18, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Right, that word helper has no demeaning value to it. It's not putting women down as second class. Rather, it's, it's one of the ways that women reflect who God is because God is a helper. We looked at a bunch of verses when we went through this before that show that. Let me just remind you of one. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 29 says, Blessed are you, Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, because he is your shield and helper. And we tend to think of being a helper like when my kids help make dinner. It doesn't actually help at all, right? Everything takes twice as long. It's more messy. It doesn't go as well. We let them help because we love them, not because they're actually helping, right? It's sort of condescending to say that they're helping. But that's not what Genesis 2.18 is saying about women. Rather, it's speaking about capability and strength and knowledge. Right? God helps us because we need his help. We can't do it without his help. We need to be saved by him. And that this verse in Genesis 2 says women are called by God to be helpers, particularly in families and in the church, because men can't do it on their own. And God in his design has called men to lead and called women to support. So if we talked about all this in more detail. You can go back and listen to the sermons if that's not enough and you need more explanation of that a few weeks ago. But just as a point of application, as a reminder for today, husbands and fathers, you bear responsibility before God for how you lead your family. How you take the lead to point them to Jesus, to discipline your kids, to make your home a safe and functioning place. And there's no room in this description for you to be a tyrant or a bully because you are leading sacrificially. You're called to lead sacrificially as Jesus did, right? Ephesians 5 says the husbands are to lay down their lives for their wives as Christ laid down his life for the church. This is how you are to reflect God's image in marriage. Well, wives and mothers, you also bear responsibility before God for how you support your husbands in that role. As they lead, you help them with that. Now that's going to look different for every family, and in some families it's really complicated because of human brokenness, both physically and mentally, and also just because of sin. There's a lot more that can be said there. Marriage is complicated, and in fact, I did say a lot more about it, and again, you can go back and re-listen to that sermon from November 26th. It's called The Image of God, Gender Part 2, if you want to, to hear more or be reminded. But the general principle in there for wives is do you encourage your husband to step up and lead rather than just taking over yourself? Wives, do you give in to fear and worry over how he leads, or do you trust God and allow him, allow God to help you grow in your character? So in short, just summarizing again, this is the last part of this first point. What does it mean to act like a man or a woman? Acting like a man means laying down your ego and taking responsibility. Acting like a, wo a woman means letting go of your fear, and when it's appropriate, in the right relationships, like marriage or the church, being willing to follow and support. So that's our recap point. If you didn't remember that, that helps refresh you. If you've never heard that before, you need to hear more of that. Go back and listen to the sermon. It'll get, flesh it out a bit more. But with that in mind, we can move on to the next point that needs to be made today. And that's this. That God created what marriage and sex are to reflect his image. Now that sounds like the main point of the sermon. The main point of the sermon is God created marriage and sex to reflect his image. But the, point, the second point is God created what marriage and sex are to reflect his image. We need to think about what marriage is, what sex is, and how those reflect his image. Now, we need to stop for a minute and, and, 
and realize that in these verses in Genesis chapter 2, God doesn't just create men and women in general, or even a man and a woman. God creates a man and a woman for each other. God recognizes that it's not good for the man to be alone, so he creates Eve out of Adam's side, and then he gives Adam and Eve to one another. If you look at Genesis 2, 23, uh, the man says, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So God here is creating marriage. Just like he created the world and the stars and space and time and man and women, God created marriage, which means that we didn't make it up. Though our society believes that we did. It's something that we designed over time to help us in life. That's not true. God created marriage. And because God created marriage, we don't get to decide what it is. We have to ask God what it is. So what is marriage? Well, according to Genesis 2.24, it says, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So marriage is leaving your family to start a new one with a husband or a wife. But it's not just starting one family or starting a new family. There's that last phrase in there that's really important. Marriage is two becoming one flesh. Two becoming one flesh. Now, most people, I think, when they hear that phrase, they automatically think of sex. It sounds very physical and sexual. But there's more to it than that. Now, when I got married, I was a virgin when I got married, and I had this idea that my wedding night, don't worry, I'm not going to go weird places with this, that my wedding night would, would change my world forever, right? That I was going to be a completely different person the next day. And, and it was weird, but both Becky and I talked about this. We enjoyed our wedding night, but it felt very normal. And the next day, it felt very normal. We didn't feel permanently bonded to each other because of one night of marriage. Because that's not how it works. It's not just that the act of having sex makes you one flesh. It's marriage that does it. With sex as a powerful part of that marriage. Right? Think about this. Sex is absolute physical intimacy with another person. And marriage is absolute intimacy, not just physically, but in every other way, in every way with that person. You become one flesh, not just by physical intimacy, but by intimacy in your, your entire life by making a sacred covenant promise to one another, and then doing your life together for the rest of your life. Marriage isn't like having a roommate or a sibling. And it's not even like having a romantic partner that you have sex with without being married. It's completely different from those things. Your lives are joined, and you're in it together till death parts you. Listen, marriage isn't just about coexisting in the same house and trying to keep the peace, although it may feel that way sometimes. It's not about having the life that you want and then adding a husband or a wife to your life as well. Marriage is a life-changing relationship that will challenge you to your core and hold a mirror up to your face and show you just how sinful and selfish you are and give you the choice to really grow and change or make the person you love the most miserable. You know that that thing, if a tree falls over in a forest, does it really make any noise if no one's there to hear it? Marriage is kind of like that, but with your sin. 
You were just as sinful before, you just had no one to tell you about it, right? No one that it affected in the same way. In a healthy marriage, you can't just avoid the conflicts like you can in other relationships. If you want your marriage to be good, you have to work through those conflicts. You have to grow and you have to change together. You have to repent and turn to Christ and make it right with one another. That's how a husband and wife become one flesh. Through the sorrow and the joy and the pain and the comfort of working through hard things together. Right? You're going to have conflict about how you spend your money and how you spend your time and why you never screw the lids on jars properly and if it's yellow or orange and all kinds of crazy things like that. You're going to have conflicts about how to love each other well through sex because that is not easy. You're going to get, going to get mad and hurt. You're going to cry and laugh together and you're going to work through your fi- conflicts and figure out which ones are funny quirks you can live with, which ones are things that you just have to live with, and which ones are the ones that are killing your marriage and you need to change. This becoming one flesh thing is a lifelong journey that can be really frustrating. And honestly, I think too many married couples give up on real intimacy because they decide it's just not worth the effort. It's too hard. We don't talk about hard stuff because we want to avoid fights. So we live separate lives. We don't fight over marriage. We keep our money separate. We don't do things together. We just live separate lives and we just come together to take care of our kids. But we don't t- spend time building into each other in that deep, intimate way, getting to know one another's hearts. That is hard work that can be very unpleasant at times. And it may be that you need help from another couple, from a pastor and his pastor's wife, or even a trained Christian counselor to help you get through those things. Listen, if you do, there's nothing wrong with that. That is what God has designed us for. Our need for one another goes beyond just marriage, but we're more broad than that. We think of marriage as very private, and some of it is, but there are times that we need to seek others out and do this with other people and other relationships. But it's these things, these conflicts, these struggles that make us one flesh with our spouse. And if you avoid them, your marriage will not be what it's meant to be. And you know It's only in a marriage context like that that real sexual intimacy is possible. One of my favorite uh, Christian authors died last year of of cancer. His name was Tim Keller. He was a pastor in New York City. I was very sad when he died. Uh, He wrote a book on marriage called The Meaning of Marriage. I've given it out to basically anybody that I did premarital counseling for. In that book, he says this. Sex, apart from marriage, becomes a product we consume if we find someone attractive enough in quality and low enough in price. If the quality goes down or the cost goes up, we can walk away because there's no covenant. But if sex comes only with the radical self-giving and a whole life commitment of marriage, that takes sex off the market, as it were, and makes it priceless. What he's saying there is that marriage is the only safe place to have sex. Because in marriage, if done right, and and, and when I say done right, I'm talking about all the things I was talking about before, plus the previous point, right, of a husband leading and a wife trying to follow and support and and help in that, all those things are part of this. If it's done right, two people have made a commitment to each other, and there's a confidence that allows you to be truly intimate as you give your lives to each other 
every day in every way, but then also intimately and physically through sex, right? None of us do any of that perfectly well, right? And there's, there's grades of how you even can do it, depending on the, some of the realities in your marriage. But this is the design that God had for marriage, two people becoming one flesh and then giving themselves to each other sexually as a part of that. But so far, I've only really talked to people who are married. And I've only talked about one aspect of marriage, when things are, how to do it well. There's another part of this that we need to think about that. And this brings us to our third point, that not only has God designed the roles of husband and wife to reflect his image, and God has designed what marriage and sex are to reflect his image, but God has also designed sexual purity to reflect his image. Sexual purity. This, this message of what sex is is so radically different from how our culture thinks about sex. And during the pandemic, one of the things that all of us had to do was figure out what the government's regulations were on every aspect of life that we were allowed to do. I know you remember that. There were regulations on how churches could run. That was very important to my life and how we did things here. But regulations on going to stores, regulations on family gatherings, on sports events. There was even a document the government put out on COVID regulations for sex. I don't know if you saw that one. Because people in our culture think of sex as something you go out and do with strangers that you meet in, online or in sex clubs, with friends that you're not committed to in any, any serious way. Right? Our culture tells us that sex is just a physical appetite that you should be able to fulfill however you want as long as it's consensual and not harmful. It can be as recreational, it can be as casual as you like, as long as no one's getting hurt. Now that's not a new idea. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is talking about sexual sin and he quotes the attitude of the culture at the time in 1 Corinthians 6.13 and he says, you say food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. He's talking about sex there, Right? Just like food's for your stomach, you've got an appetite, you fill it. That's how sex works, too. But, you know, he goes on in that passage to say, God says that if you have sex that way, everyone involved is getting hurt. It is harmful. It is damaging. Outside of one man and one woman in a monogamous, loving, radically committed marriage, sex is harmful. Only the context for which God designed it is it good and beautiful and healthy. Right? Because sex isn't designed, isn't designed by God to be about satisfying yourself. It's designed to be about giving yourself to someone else, becoming one flesh with them. It's an act of covenant giving, not appetite satisfaction. Right? That government of Canada document on COVID regulations, or it might have been a Toronto one, I can't remember for sure. Um, on the COVID regulations for sex, it began with a strong recommendation for self-sex. It said, just do that. Masturbate. Self-sex was the term they used, though. It's a terrible term. It's a contradiction in itself. Sex is for giving yourself to your spouse and letting them give themselves to you so you are both satisfied in each other. It was never meant to be about satisfying yourself. Marriage and sex, the way that God designed them, show us the sacrificial, giving love of God for us. They reflect Him. They reflect his image in a powerful way, which is why when our attitude becomes self-centered, which is a lot of the time, sex and marriage becomes so twisted and ugly. 
Right? Marriage and sex are a gift that God gave to humanity, but they were given with regulations. And outside of those regulations, they twist God's image. They become destructive rather than good. Now, the Bible has two main categories of sexual sin, right? If you read through it, you've, you've heard the words adultery and sexual immorality, or in the older version, sexual immorality was called fornication. Any sexual activity that involves unfaithfulness to your spouse, well, that's adultery, right? It's the fifth commandment. Don't commit adultery. Largely, that's even frowned upon by our culture. But Jesus takes it much further than our culture would be, com- would be comfortable doing and says in Matthew 5, 28, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, and you could do it the other way, a, a woman for a man or whatever else, anyone who does that has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So when we talk about adultery, married people, we're talking about pornography, we're talking about masturbation, we're talking about fantasy, we're talking about lust. If you're married, those things are adultery. If you aren't married, you can't commit adultery at this point in your life. But you can commit sexual immorality. That, that chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 talks about how you say food is for the body and the body is for food. Well, that Later on that verse, Paul continues, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Right, that term sexual immorality is a broader term that sort of catches everything. And here's where our culture will disagree even more strongly with the Bible. Right, that Greek word for sexual immorality is pornea, from which we get the word pornography. It literally just means pictures of sexual immorality. But everything fits into this category, including adultery, as we already talked about, homosexuality, sex between unmarried people, sexual fantasy, masturbation, as well as everything like assault and molestation and all those other things all fit into this category. Now, I, I mentioned homosexuality as one in a list of sexual sins, and I wish I could just leave it there and say no more. But because of where we are, it needs some special attention. It needs some nuance. So I'm going to take some time to explain that one a bit more. We talked about in, in here in Genesis chapter 2 that because marriage and sex are only for one male and one female. Homosexuality is not something that God allows. Now, if you hear that, and you're here as somebody who, who is homosexual or, or experiences attraction to people of the same gender as them, and you hear me say that God doesn't allow homosexuality, please don't hear what I think is very common for people to hear, that God doesn't like you. That God hates you. That's not what I'm saying. That your identity is against God in some way. That's true of all of us, but not you particularly. I want you to know that God loves you. And so do we as a church. Now, you, you, you may not believe that, but it's true. My job is to tell you what the Bible says about how God created us, and you may find that offensive, and I understand that. There are lots of reasons people could find this teaching today offensive. But we started our series on the image of God way back at the end of October, actually, by saying that every single one of us, because we're created in the image of God, we have value and dignity as human beings. And we meant that. That's what the Bible teaches us. All of us are sinners before God. And being heterosexual doesn't make anyone better than anyone else. And being homosexual doesn't make anyone worse than anyone else. We don't see ourselves better than you are or anyone else is. I'd love 
to talk to you more about this after the service, whether this is something you're struggling with or just questions that you have about this. I mean, if you, I know that would be something brave for you to do to come talk to me. I'd be happy to do that discreetly with you. I'd love to talk to you more about this. But I want to continue by showing what the Bible has to say about this in more detail. God makes it clear that the blueprint for marriage and sex is one male and one female, because in Genesis 2.18, when God said that it wasn't good for the man to be alone, he followed it up with a statement that we already talked about, I will make a helper suitable for him, right? I wanted to talk about that again in detail because it matters for this conversation. God made Eve to be like Adam as opposed to the animals, but not exactly the same as him. She was also his opposite. She was different from him as a woman. His body was designed to be a father, hers to be a mother, whether or not People become a father or mother is irrelevant to that truth about who we are as male and female. The man was called to be a humble leader who takes responsibility, and she was called to trust God and support her husband. And God's design for marriage is for two people who are like and opposite to each other to become one, a man and a woman who fit together both in who God made them and who he called them to be. Now, one of the phrases that our world uses a lot is that love is love. Why can't love just be love? Believe it or not, I kind of agree with that statement. I'm not in any way implying that two men can't really love each other or two women can't really love each other. Real, valid love. But here's where I disagree with that statement. Not all love is the same. And you agree with that too. I know you do. Because I don't love my daughters in the same way that I love my wife. That would be wrong for me to do. And I don't love my friends in the same way that I love my daughters or my wife. I don't love my mom and dad or my brothers and sisters in the same way that I love any of those other relationships. But all of those are real love. We recognize that there are different kinds of love and that it would be inappropriate to, to get them mixed up. Well, the Bible says that it's inappropriate by God's design to have sexual romantic love for someone of the same gender. Feel free to love deeply whoever you want. In fact, we're commanded to love one another. That's not just a nice, fuzzy saying. We, we really should care about and have relationship with other people. But we can't cross the lines that God has designed in us. This may leave you wondering what someone who is attracted to the same gender is expected to do. How do you live? What, what, what's, what's left for you? I want to come back to that. I want to talk about that a bit more. But first, I also want to address those of us who don't deal with same-sex attraction as a reality in our lives, what, what, what do we take away from this? Because most of the people in this room, what we're struggling with is how to hold the truth that the Bible teaches in a society where it just isn't allowed. You're not allowed to believe that. <clears throat> you're certainly not, not allowed to say it publicly. In fact, you're expected to celebrate homosexuality and transgenderism at least every June. And whether you're a teacher or working in the corporate world or in healthcare industry or whatever it is, it's just hard to know how to navigate that, what to do. Now, back at the beginning of November when we were going through this series, I spoke about how God created us to work. And in that sermon, I asked a question that some people had some questions about. So I want to talk about that again. The question I asked is, are you willing to lose your job because of Jesus? Now, I got some feedback that some of you thought that maybe I was saying you should quit your job. Uh, if they have policies that don't line up with the Bible. But the reality is, I think just about every job but mine has policies that don't line up with the Bible. Um, so that would be all of you. And I wasn't saying, go quit your job if your, your workplace doesn't believe what the Bible teaches about homosexuality or anything. 
But what I was asking is a step back from that. What's more important to you? Your job and the security and the finances that that bring and the identity that can come from it or, or Jesus? That's really the same question that I'm asking for people who struggle with homosexuality as a sin or any sin. What's more important, the identity and the security and the pleasure you get from that or, or Jesus? Because when it comes to your work, most of the time you're going to be able to navigate the minefield of work decently well. But there will come a time when you have to choose between compromising your faithfulness to Jesus or speaking up. And if that time comes, what will you do? Someone asked me about this. Can you talk about this in this? And I know this is a reality you deal with. So here's my advice. Just love everyone really well. Like, you're going to get accused of being a bigot at some point if you stand up for what the Bible teaches about this. But just don't actually be one, right? Make sure that the people around you know how much you love them before this comes up. Love people. Love LGBTQ people. Don't, like, find the one that you're going to, like, home in on. Like, just love everybody really well, right? Don't make people projects. Be their friends. And work hard at work. Show that you're valuable to your work. Show yourself to be a kind-hearted and compassionate person. Don't pick fights. But if your conscience feels pricked about something that's happening around you, pray hard, pray with others, don't do it by yourself, and then follow your conscience, right? Again, I would, I would advise away from posting stuff on social media about this because that's just going to cause a whole hoopla, but in relationship with people, when it comes up, do what you need to do. Even if that means you're going to receive d- discipline at work it means you'll never get promoted at work, even if it means you're going to lose your job. We need to be willing to suffer for Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that we need to go out looking to get martyred, right? You know, in the early days of the church, sometimes the Roman Empire would require people to offer a sacrifice to the emperor as a god. They would say, you know, you need to do this, and if you don't, they would kill you. Christians got killed for not offering a sacrifice to the emperor because they said there is no Lord but Jesus. We will not do that. And by the way, that is much worse than anything that will happen to you for this. They trusted God and they stood with Jesus and that's what we're called to do. But in that time, there were some people who thought getting martyred for their faith would be an honor so they would go voluntarily turn themselves in for not sacrificing to Caesar. Now, you don't need to be like those guys, right? You don't need to pick a fight. You don't need to to try and cause problems. But even more importantly than that, don't be like the people who caved, because there were those people too, and lit the incense as a sacrifice either. Don't be like them. Love people when your conscience is pricked. Pray about it and do what you need to do and be willing to suffer for Jesus. All right, back to the main point about sexual purity. Listen, God's gifts are good if they are enjoyed the way he intended. That's, that's the point, right? If they're misused in any way, then they are damaging, always, right? We've been told, again, that sex is merely a human appetite and that recreational activity it's to be enjoyed in a safe and respectful manner is fine as long as everyone consents. We've been told that putting rules around sex is unnatural and harmful. That people, we've been told that people are suicidal because they're told they can't enjoy sex the way they want, right? People have put that on, on Christians, on the church, and, and I want to say, man, it's so sad that that's happening. When people are driven to suicide out of despair, that breaks our heart, my heart. It should break your hearts too. 
but we can't pin that on the Bible. We've been told by our culture that our fulfillment in life, our very identities, depends on following our hearts, especially in sexual fulfillment. If, that our, if all of our identity comes from that, then of course restrictions will lead to depression and despair. But friends, let me tell you something else. Not only will restrictions lead to depression and despair, but, but when you have freedom to do whatever you want to, and then you realize in the midst of that that it still doesn't bring fulfillment, that sex can never bring that kind of fulfillment to you, you'll also be depressed. You'll also find despair. Did you know that sex does not bring fulfillment in life? That that's a lie that we're told by our society. Sex was never meant to do that. It can't do that. Our world has told us that sexual expression is a way to be true to our hearts, that it's essential for human flourishing and fulfillment. But being true to your heart will not bring fulfillment. Let me say that again. It will not bring fulfillment. It will bring emptiness because your heart does not know what's best for you. And you've experienced that over and over again when you've eaten that whole bag of chips when you shouldn't have. And in so many other ways. That's a very personal experience for me. Your heart craves unhealthy, empty things all the time. So rather than to be true to our hearts, you and I need to be true to the God who created us and who, and who he says that we are. We need to remember that we were created in, in his image as male and female. We need to remember that sex is a gift for a woman and a man to enjoy in a mon lifelong monogamous marriage full of sacrificial, self-giving love. And that if you aren't married, or, or if you aren't married yet, or you aren't married anymore, I know that's true for some of us, or if you never get married, or if you're not even attracted to people of the opposite gender, then celibacy, not having sex, refraining from sex, is a good thing for you. Not having sex is God's best for you if that's your circumstance. Now, that will often not feel true. You will experience loneliness, sexual desire, real sadness. You will long for what God has not given you, and maybe he will give it to you in his timing, but maybe he won't. But you need to believe to the very foundation of your soul that taking matters into your own hands and shortcutting God's design will not make things better for you. It will make them worse. This week I was reading my kid a book called Little Pilgrim's Big Journey. It's an adaptation of Pilgrim's Progress for Kids. Um, it's a book by John Bunyan. If you know this story, he wrote it a long time ago. Uh, and it's, a, it's an allegory, a, a story where everything kind of is symbolic for something in life, and it's about the Christian life. This man named Christian gets called by God. He's living in a city of destruction. He goes on a journey to the celestial city, so from being unsaved to the rest of his life till he gets to heaven. And along the way, he faces temptations and distractions and things that pull him aside, and God rescues him a whole bunch of times, and it's an interesting story. But one of the, one of the ones that really struck me as I was reading this to, I think it was MJ this week, is that along the way, beside the path, they see this tree growing that's so ugly. It's twisted and dark, and it doesn't make any sense, but out of this ugly, dark, twisted tree, there's these beautiful golden apples growing from it. And they've been warned not to eat them, that the true food is waiting for them later on. Don't eat those apples. But one of the companions on the trip, he can't help himself, and he bites into one of the apples, and it tastes, you ever had a really good apple, and it just tastes so good. 
sweet and delicious and crisp and juicy. And he just enjoys it so immensely. You can't imagine why anyone would say not to eat these apples. They're just, they're so good. But that sweetness is momentary. It doesn't last. It turns to bitterness in his stomach and he falls sick. And thankfully there's a medicine for this sickness that they're able to give him. This medicine is called truth. Truth. And he takes it, but it's so bitter tasting in his mouth that he wants to spit it out right away. He can't handle it. I don't like this. But he's warned that it only tastes bitter because he's already eaten from the lies of Satan. So they give him a second dose of medicine. That second dose is just to help the first one taste better. This dose is called grace. Listen, God's truth isn't always going to taste good for us because we've been influenced by the false messages of our world. But we need to remember that God didn't just make random rules to spoil our fun and be mean to us. He made these rules to protect us because he loves us. His love and grace will help us swallow his truth even when our taste has been twisted by the false messages of the world around us. Do you know that God loves you? Do you, do you really, and, yeah, of course God loves us. No, do you really know it? Do you know that he desires good things for you? Do you know that even when you think his ways aren't good, that you're the one whose taste buds are messed up? Everything that God put in his design for humanity, involving love and marriage and even sex, it's to point us to his image, ultimately to the love that he has for us. Our longing for love. When you're sitting lonely, and that's true maybe for unmarried people and for some married people, lonely and longing for real, fulfilling love, that longing cannot be fulfilled with anything in this world. It's really a longing for his love, for his love for us. Right? That's the image of God in us reflecting. His love is ultimate love. It's, it's a sacrificial and costly, and it's for our good. We rebelled against his good ways, and we bring destruction to ourselves and to others by trying to determine right and wrong for ourselves. And yet, rather than leaving us to that destruction and estrangement from him, separation from his love, he sent his son to rescue us from our sin. Now, Jesus became one of us. He became a human, and we're going to talk about that in more detail next week. He became one of us to show us our way back to God, to die in our place for our sins, to make it possible for us to reconnect with God. Jesus rose again in victory over sin and death. That death and destruction that comes because of sin, he beat it. By raising again. He defeated it through his resurrection. And so now if we run from our sins and put our trust in him, then our sins are forgiven. Our debts are paid. That sacrifice of Jesus is for we who are undeserving of his grace. That's what grace is. We don't deserve it. It's a gift. It's God's sacrificial love poured out for us who shouldn't have it, right? Listen, that love, that grace, it's not just for the pure. It's not just for the good. It's not just for the married. It's not just for heterosexuals. It's for all of us. 
sinners one and all. That passage in 1 Corinthians 6 that I referenced before says this in verse 9. Do you not know, this is talking to Christians, that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And then he lists a bunch of sins. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, people who worship idols, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So we need to think about all those sins, not just the sexual ones, but all those sins. You cannot love God and, and know God and be accepted by God with those sins. But then he says in verse 11, and that is what some of you were, Christians. This is what you were. This is who you were before you knew God. But you were washed. You were sanctified. That means made holy. You were justified. We talked about that a few weeks ago. You were declared innocent of your sins. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Brothers and sisters, friends, believe in the love and grace of Jesus and find his love and forgiveness for you. The love your soul really needs. Some of you have not experienced that or have turned away from it. You need that love and that grace. Please, believe in Jesus. Turn from your sins. And then for all of us who have done that, hold on to that grace. Hold on to it when you don't understand why his truth is good, because sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Stand firm in his love when you are lonely and tempted, when marriage and sex don't bring the fulfillment you thought they would. They were never meant to bring that fulfillment. But Jesus will. His love is ultimate. Everything else is a shadow that points us to the reality that we need. So look to him and rejoice in his love. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you for the gifts that you've given us in creating us humans, male and female, the gift of relationship, the gift of work, the gift of making us have dignity, the gift of, of marriage and sex in the, in the confines that you've given it to us. But mostly all, of all, we, we thank you for the gift of Jesus becoming one of us, the true image of God who, who came to show us who you are and, and bring forgiveness and acceptance for us who are sinners. Help us to remember that this is what is true. This is the ultimate reality, the foundation of our lives, and help us to be willing to give up everything for that if you call us to. Help us to stand firm knowing how deep your love is for us when we can't see it. When your ways don't feel good to us, we are sorry that our taste buds for goodness have been messed up by our sin, by the message of the world. Help us to truly, by your Holy Spirit's power, believe that you are good and your ways are good and help us to stand with you because we know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray these things in his name. Amen.